Okay, folks, um, let's come back together. It's nice to see you uh, fellowshipping with one another. I've never done this before. I actually have a student in front of me now on FaceTime taking the class from Toronto. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody say hi to Sarah. Oh, it says connection lost. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how this stuff works. Maybe she'll show up again. So anyway. So on one hand is the um, uh, idea that rational evidences cannot lead a person to faith. On the other hand is the idea that rational evidences are in fact necessary to lead a person to faith. And uh, okay, you can all say hi, Sarah, again. Okay, there you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, a mediating approach. And the way I want to approach this is basically to present a series of things that I would consider to be factual. And when looked at in their totality, leads one to the conclusion that there's, there's actually an element of truth in both of these apologetic positions. And I actually don't think you have to sort of technically choose one or the other, but there actually is, you can actually mediate between the two. So here are some facts. Here are some facts. Uh, fact number one is that from a Christian perspective, and even from a logical perspective, if God exists, God exists regardless of the facts. It's kind of like saying to someone, oh, I know a guy named Aaron Rock. And you're, let's say, in Timbuktu. You're like, well, prove to me you know Aaron Rock. Well, I can't. I didn't bring his birth certificate. I don't have any pictures. I don't have any audio recordings. I have, I have nothing. Well, it, it's, it's not as if because you can't prove that Aaron Rock exists and Aaron Rock doesn't exist. I mean, Aaron Rock can exist apart from your ability to prove him to someone else, right? So from a to sort of a tip of the hat to the presuppositionalists is to say that, yes, God God in theory, whoever that God is, even if his name happens to be Allah, can exist apart from your ability to prove him or disprove him. So fact number two then is that the human mind is naturally inquisitive of spiritual or supernatural things. It doesn't necessarily embrace them as we might like. There are many people that are inquisitive of supernatural spiritual things that conclude that it's bunk. But interest, have you ever noticed that people who are very opposed to, let's say, Christianity are very interested in proving to you that Christianity isn't true? They actually spend a lot of time trying to prove that Christianity isn't true. And I find that fascinating, by the way. I don't spend uh, a great deal of time bashing other religions. I do spend some time doing it, but I don't spend all my time. And it doesn't really anger me that there are other world religions. I understand they exist. I kind of wish they wouldn't. But it doesn't, like, rock my world. But there's a lot of people that say, I don't believe in any God, and they spend all of their time and energy trying to prove it. So we have the National Atheist Coalition actually putting up, like, billboards in downtown, in Times Square, in New York, uh, bashing the the birth of Jesus Christ and all that kind of stuff during Christmas. Well, why would you even spend money doing that? Why do you care? But interestingly, you'll, you'll see that. And I would suggest to you that there's some inquisitive interest in spiritual or supernatural things. Another example of that would be reality television, where you have shows where people run around looking for ghosts. 
and they actually put out like 20 or 25 episodes, but they never find one. But people still watch, right? So they're using all these funky infrared cameras and all this other stuff that I don't understand, trying to prove that there's supernatural beings out there. But they never prove it, but people still watch it. Why? Because they're interested in that kind of stuff. Uh, New Testament examples exist of rational evidential apologetics. So yes, we do have Genesis 1, but we also have men like Peter, Paul, and John uh, who are giving evidences or uh, making rational truth claims about the nature of Christianity. Fact, humanity still bears the image of God. James 3.9 is, is an example where it refers to this in, uh, in Scripture. It didn't just disappear with the fall of man in Genesis 3. And therefore, we are capable of a cognitive function of thinking. So while the fall does affect every part of us, including our minds, our minds still are intact to some degree. We still think about things. One can have faith apart from reason. That's true. So, or sorry, one cannot have faith apart from reason. Well, you might say, well, what about someone that's severely disabled that um, uh, still has faith in God? Well, um, that person may have diminished reasoning abilities, but they still are somewhat aware of some truth claim in order to accept it. We're not, we, the purpose of this class is not to get into a conversation about the destiny or the fate of the mentally infirmed. But the point is, is if someone who has a mental disability uh, says, I believe in God, well, at some point someone told them that, they've subscribed on some level to a, a truth claim and believe that to be true. That's what they've staked their faith on. Uh, for the rest of humanity, uh, when you have faith, it implies a measure of notitia, content. We're also instructed to give answers. First Peter 3.15, I preached on that on Sunday. So here's the bottom line. While God exists apart from our presuppositions or assumptions, uh, he, he must exist as a reason presupposition to saving faith and to be accepted at his word. In other words, God does not exist because of the facts in his favor. This is very important. God doesn't exist when you've proved him and cease to exist when someone's throwing you a curveball and you're not sure about it anymore any more than I exist or you exist, depending on whether someone can prove your existence or not. But the facts in his favor must be accepted, at least in some sort of a seed form, basic form, for saving faith to be authentic. So we could say then that our faith is reasonable uh, in that it is unabashedly rational. Uh, it's also based on revelation, some of which is unabashedly mysterious. So I think there's sort of a both-and dimension to this. On one hand, Yes, there are evidences that point us to God, but God is not dependent for his existence on our evidences. God exists regardless of our ability to prove him. So he is sort of a presupposition, he just is. But our ability to provide rational evidences do sometimes help to remove some of the blinders or at least remove some of the lies that stand in the way of people seeing him for all of his fullness. So I, I find value in rational evidentialism, and I also find great value in presuppositionalism. Let me talk just a little bit further. This is not in, in your notes, but I want to talk a little bit further about, um, about reason. Um, 
One could say that reason or evidences lead us up to faith. Reason or evidences don't necessarily lead us into faith. Because one could argue that faith itself is a gift of God, where God awakens our minds, our hearts to his truth, to the gospel message, and miraculously converts us. But what reasons do is they lead us up to the point of faith. The, one of the uh, descriptions that is given of uh, Jesus in the Gospels, notably in the Gospel of John, is Jesus is called the Logos. So in, uh, where's my markers here? In uh, English letters, L-O-G-O-S. He's called the Logos. Now this word, uh, can actually be translated as word in Greek, but it has more meaning to it than just word. It actually is a word that was used by Greek philosophers and uh, sort of contains three elements. It, is, uh, it refers to linguistic terms, okay, so it refers to words, and of course Jesus did speak words to us, but logos also refers to what I called earlier mental concepts. And logos also refers to real essences. So it refers to uh, linguistic terms. It also refers to mental concepts. And it refers to real essences. And I understand that people in the back probably can't see any of this. That'll teach you for being late. <laughs> real essences. Now, um, how do these three go together? Well, linguistic terms, what they essentially do is they serve, and I kind of mentioned this to you earlier, linguistic terms, words, serve to express mental concepts. So I use the example of love. L-O-V-E is just a word. It's a linguistic word. But it's meant to express a mental concept. We have a concept. Some of us might have a better concept than others about what love is. And mental concepts, we could add here, are meant to express real essences. So love itself is what the word L-O-V-E is trying to take us to. But it takes us logically from symbols, L-O-V-E, to a concept, an understanding of what love is, to the experience of love. So, Jesus is interestingly called the Logos. He speaks the word of God to us. He uses language, words that people can understand. The purpose of doing that is to expose people to certain mental concepts, certain truth concepts, certain emotional concepts. God is love, God saves, God is sovereign. God has a plan for your life. We are the fruit. God is the vine, right? All this kind of, these concepts that Jesus communicated, the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. But the ultimate purpose of communicating those mental concepts is so that we can encounter the real essence of those things, so that we can encounter God, so that we can live in the kingdom, so that our lives can be radically transformed, so that we can be, we ra be radically changed. So the divine logos uh, is in part 
reason personified. Like you could say one of the words, one of the titles of Jesus is reason. And that includes three things. Words, mental concepts, and essences. Uh, Jesus is rational. Jesus is reason personified. Jesus is uh, evidence personified. Jesus is here to lead us toward truth. So faith is not just me and God on an island having an experience. But there is a sense in Jesus' name, in the titles that are used of of Jesus himself, notably this one, that Jesus wants to lead us into the experience of truth in all of its fullness. So I emphasize that because the Christian faith is experiential, it is personal, but it's also rational. And this rational aspect of our faith is actually found in one of the key terms that's used to describe our Savior himself, the Logos, the one who speaks, the one who introduces us to truth, the one who wants us to encounter the true essence of life. Now here are some questions that people who are interested in uh, the, the growth of the modern church are asking of apologetics. So interestingly, if you uh, are engaged in apologetics, you're going to spend probably half your time talking with non-believers, people of competing worldviews and world religions about the nature of Christianity, but you're actually also going to have to defend the very task of apologetics to other Christians. Because many people are asking the question, should we even be doing this stuff called apologetics? And here's why, in the form of questions. So question number one is, are we a religion or an organism? And what's the answer? We're actually both. I know we don't like the language of religion, but Christianity actually qualifies by definition as a religion. But primarily, it is an organism. It is, a, it is the body of Christ. It's the family of believers. It's a group of people. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. But nevertheless, because of this, the question is asked, if it's an organism, then what place do verbal apologetics have? No one argues another person into a relationship. So think about that for a minute. Some people may ask you this. If your faith or if our faith is a relational faith, if we go to church and we're a family, I'm your brother, some of you are my brothers, some of you are my sisters. We are a family. We're an organism, first and foremost. We're an entity. We are a living, breathing body. Why try to argue people into a relationship with us? I didn't argue my wife into a relationship with me. I didn't twist your arm behind your back to come tonight and have this conversation, listen to these lectures. You came volitionally, and that kind of makes it better than if you were forced to come. So what place does arguing someone into an organism have if the church is indeed an organism? It's a question that people have asked. Another question is, what is the place of programs in apologetics and evangelism by that, for that matter? Is it ethical to lure people into faith using sort of bait and switch methods? So let's say that um, next week we're starting a ball hockey league in our church for kids. It's going to be down the hall, far enough away so we can't hear. And the purpose of the ball hockey league, believe it or not, is really not to teach kids ball hockey. We want to introduce them to Jesus Christ. So some Christians have actually asked, is that ethical? 
Is it ethical to create ministries or programs or initiatives when you're baiting the kid with a stick and a ball, but in reality, you want to introduce him to Jesus? And we could talk about many other things we do as a church. Is it ethical to, use, to lure people using uh, bait and switch methods? Um, should the services of the church be seeker-friendly, or is the role of the church to go and tell? This is another great question that's been asked. There's a whole movement. It's not so popular nowadays, but used to be talked a lot about in the 80s and especially the 90s, called the seeker-sensitive movement. And this was uh, largely grounded out of some of the things that took place at Willow Creek in, in Chicago, a church that grew very quickly. And they basically said, look, Sunday morning is a time when unbelievers will come out if they're going to come at all, so we need to do things in such a way that we're sensitive to seekers. And uh, so there was a huge movement toward uh, seeker-sensitive churches. But then some people began to say, but is that really the role of the church? I mean, is that the paradigm of the church? Because Jesus says, go into the world and make disciples. Like, it's like, go get them. It's not come and see like it was in Israel. It's like, go and tell. So how do we, should we do church in an apologetic fashion? Or should apologetics just take place outside of our proverbial four walls? A fourth question is, how does the Christian faith do against scientific rationalism? Because pretty much every person in this room probably went to school uh, either here or nearby here in a system that promoted and promulgated, propagated, pushed for scientific rationalism. Uh, many Christians today have asked the question, they're so convinced, in fact, of scientific rationalism, how does scientific rationalism fare against faith? And so there's been different approaches to try to blend the two. So we have theistic evolution, the belief in Darwinian evolution, but it was just overseen by God, and all kinds of other things that, that people have put forward. So that's a question people are asking because a lot of young people and uh, a lot of people within evangelicalism actually believe in scientific rationalism, but somehow want to merge that with the Christian faith. Fifth question is, to, to what degree is modern apologetics influenced or impacted by the rationalism of the Enlightenment. Uh, I actually wrote a, a thesis for a master's degree on how uh, the, the way knowledge was presented in the Enlightenment has affected the way that we preach and proclaim truth. So for instance, if you go to our church's website, there's a doctrinal statement. And it says, this is what we believe about God, this is what we believe about Christ, the Bible, and it's got a whole list of things, right? And pretty much any church that you'll look at online has a doctrinal statement. But if you go to the Bible, you won't find a doctrinal statement, interestingly. There's no place in the Bible that systematically presents all of its beliefs in sort of a summary fashion. Well, where do doctrinal statements come from? Well, in part, doctrinal statements, the desire to, to condense truth into propositions was something that arose in the Enlightenment because the Enlightenment stressed rationalism and the Enlightenment basically taught us to no longer view truth in terms of images or concepts but to view truth as propositions. Now, therefore, when we preach most of us, including myself, preach in propositional language. 
So we don't just get up there and tell a run-on story and assume that you can get the point. We tell you the point. We tell you a series of points. We make truth claims. We say this is what God is like. This is what Jesus wants you to be like and so forth and so on. All the time we communicate, I'm communicating tonight, 90% of what I'm saying tonight is propositional language. That hasn't always been the case in human history. If you were attending a, a, a class on anything a thousand years ago, it wouldn't have been taught to you primarily in propositions. It might have been taught to you in questions. So I, I did a study on how the enlightenment has affected the way that we even communicate the word of God today. Now, people who are students of history and understand that the way that we communicate the word of God, the way that we summarize our faith and propositions today, have asked the question, well, when it comes to apologetics, we're all interested in true statements and propositions and evidences and all that kind of stuff. Maybe the way we're doing apologetics is actually just a reflection of how influenced we are by the Enlightenment, but it's not actually a biblical method for doing apologetics. So these are the questions people are asking. And so you, you will have people, for instance, in the emergent church saying things like, Christianity actually does the Bible a disservice, God a disservice, by, by communicating the Christian faith in propositional forms. The Christian faith should be communicated as narrative, as story, as testimony, as poetry, as drama, and on and on and on and on. People just didn't make this stuff up. It's grounded in a particular understanding of history and how history influ influences the past and the present. And then another question is, with the rise of the social justice movement, uh, is the call of the Christian to be like Jesus or to share his truth? Now, the social justice movement is uh, a movement within Christianity it is within sort of conservative evangelicalism and it's within the liberal church and it's within the Roman church. I'm not so much convinced it's within the Orthodox church. But it's a movement within a lot of different brands and strands of Christianity to feed the poor, care for the widow, care for the orphan, that, those basic social justice causes, right? And uh, there are some that feel the church has neglected that so much in, in an effort to prove itself to be true, in an effort to preach the word, in an effort to evangelize the world, that it's actually lost sight of its calling. And so there are some that say uh, the call of the Christian is in fact not to proclaim and to preach the true statements of Jesus Christ. Jesus preached true statements to us so we would live out the message and lead people to Christ by action, by deed, and that in essence, is what true love is. Now, we're not going to answer all these questions tonight, but I'm throwing them out there because other Christians who are intelligent will ask you these questions. So part of the apologetic task is to be able to defend faith and talk about Christianity with Muslims, with atheists. But you're also going to have to have some conversations with the emergent church, with uh, people who are part of the united church, who do apologetics very differently than we do. People are part of the Roman Catholic Church. These are questions that people within Christianity, broadly speaking, are asking. Okay, any uh, questions or comments so far? I know this is kind of a lot of material, 
but you don't know each other, so you're probably not going to be that talkative tonight anyway. So we'll lecture more and we'll talk a little bit more as we move along. But any comments or questions? Dela? With who, sorry? Okay. Okay, so the question is, you know, are there guidelines for what kind of people you should do apologetics with and which kinds you shouldn't? Like, how, basically, how, how long do you spend time with someone talking? Okay, well, generally you're going to have more success with people who are not opposed to Christianity. They just don't know much about it. And there's a crisis in their life, and they're looking for relationships, and they're lonely, and they have a good relationship with you, and you love them, and you're speaking into their life. That's the kind of the ideal person to lead up to faith. Obviously, the other end of the spectrum, it's very difficult to lead a convinced Islamic scholar who's living in Saudi Arabia to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And then there's a whole spectrum of people in between. So, I mean, it's good to share the gospel with everybody. I mean, Paul shared the gospel with some people that died and were eternally damned, had no interest in God, the things of God. He was, from a human perspective, completely unsuccessful. And he shared his faith with people with whom he was quite successful, who were, in a sense, open or stirred by God, however you want to put it. So when I do apologetics, I mean, I, maybe it's arrogance, I don't know, but I, like, I enjoy having like robust, duking it out, head-to-head, you know, -head combative apologetic conversations with Muslims, because they're hard, right? Um, or convinced atheists. So I enjoy that, but I, I'm not as convinced I'm going to be as successful as someone who calls the church and says, hey, I don't know you, but I, I want to come in and talk to you about Jesus. And that does happen at, at times. And the person's like open and ready and willing and all that kind of stuff. So that kind of a person I may be, be more apt to have a series of conversations with than someone who from day one is argumentative and completely opposed to the things of God. Um, I remember one summer 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, I was working for a Jehovah's Witness. And every day, all day, working in concrete, we would debate and 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 debate. And I learned a lot. He learned a lot. Um, to the best of my knowledge, he never came to faith in Jesus Christ. I still on occasion meet other Jehovah's Witnesses and I ask them if they know him. And they say, yeah, he's still around. He's still doing well. He's one of our elders and whatnot. I never got anywhere, but I think I presented God well. And I think I minimally gave him a favorable image of biblical Christianity. Where, where that is going to lead, I don't know. Maybe it will lead nowhere. So that was, in a sense, in a sense it went nowhere, but I don't regret it. I thought it was time well spent. So there's not really any uh, 
you know, there's not really a formula I can give you other than if someone is resistant, um, you know, share your faith with them for as long as possible, but don't waste your time, so to speak. I hate to use the language of waste your time. We're talking about souls. But don't waste your time. If the doors aren't opening, if the person's not softening, if you're getting nowhere, there's, there's other, I, I think perhaps the devil could almost use that as a distraction in your life so you're not sharing your faith with people who are sort of ripe under the harvest, so to speak. So, I, I also think we need to check our attitudes because all of us, of course, want to be right. And we need to differentiate between, well, is it me wanting to be right, or am I just absolutely so convinced of my faith that I desperately want other people to know about it? Um, that's a good motivation, but if it's just me wanting to be right, we might want to engage in dialogue with people over and over and over and over and over again just to prove ourselves, but we're not actually, it's not leading anywhere, it's not accomplishing much. So it's a, it's a matter of discernment in many ways. You've got to pray about it, you've got to think about it, and make a judgment call. If you are, um, of course, in the world but not of the world, you're not going to be short on opportunities. So my, my approach is both and. You take these courses, you read about this stuff, but you, like today, tomorrow, you're talking about it. You don't take the 12 weeks and then start. You're going to have forgot 90% of it. So you're always studying and you're always doing it. You're always studying, you're always, you'll learn by experience how to do it better. Did I see a hand over here? I'm not sure. Oh, Rob? Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, the Enlightenment is sort of like a, a, a period in history. And uh, it was, like many people would date the time of the Protestant Reformation to the Enlightenment. And, but it probably was like 15, 16, 17, maybe even, maybe even into the 18th century, where there was a, a, a growing interest in rational debate and dialogue and discourse. Um, in the that's where the scientific method came about, where you, you look at something, you make observations, you kind of derive a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, you come to a true statement. So um, basically the enlightenment is called the enlightenment because people thought, well, that was when people sort of came out of the dark ages, which came before that where people weren't enlightened, where they were sort of obtuse and naive to truth and they were into gods and fairies and ghosts and goblins. And, uh, you know, everybody thought that life was a result of uh, supernatural forces and, you know, if you got sick, you had to cast out a demon or go to a soothsayer or whatever. So it was kind of like that dark ages where everything was superstitious. And the pendulum swung. So now everything is described by the mind, by evidences, by rationalism and that kind of thing. Now, we don't live during the time of the Enlightenment because it's sort of like uh, postmodernism is kind of a little bit of each. There's an emphasis on the rational, but people actually in our culture still believe in some sort of supernatural or experience at least outside of what's encounterable with the mind. So that's that kind of in a nutshell what the enlightenment is. So truth became condensed into propositions.
Well, I think the Bible in some ways does present truth as, uh, it does present truth categorically. I mean, it does say, behold, the Lord your God is one. That's pretty categorical. It's actually pretty propositional. But it also presents God through experience. We see that in the Psalms, through appeal to wisdom. We see that in the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon. It presents God to us in narratives. We see that in the Gospels. And in many, it presents God in visionary, like super experiential language, like in the apocalyptic book of Revelation and the latter chapters of Daniel. So it's diverse. Yeah. Good question. Have you ever thought about that? Does God think sequentially? Does God's, do our minds move from, okay, so it, tonight I'm, I've given you words. So I might say something, and then your mind takes what I've said, and you sort of drift out of the conversation. You're thinking about it, and you're drawing inferences. You're you're thinking about that statement in light of your experiences, in light of what you've heard in the past. And you might draw the conclusion, hey, I, I can relate to that. I've never heard that before. Or I've heard that and this just reinforces what I've heard before. Or I got to think about that more. Or I disagree with that. So I say something in words. You process it as best as you can. You hear the concepts. And then you encounter the reality that those concepts point to. Or you conclude that another reality is, is true for you, or you're just confused. So this is linear thought, right? And then you're back into the conversation, you're listening again. So communication is more like a straight line, and the way you process it is, process it is like a curved line, in and out. You cross the line, make a point of connection with what I'm saying, then you wander out and you think about it, then you come back and you make a point of connection. Like, I know this when I preach. You don't listen to every single word in a row and remember it all. Your mind goes in and out, in and out. And that's proven because people come up to me after in a sermon and say, this is what really impacted me. And I'm thinking, I never even said that. <laughs> but I know what you mean because I said something that stimulated that thought, right? So that's how we learn. It's a linear process, but it's kind of a little bit messy at times. Does God think like we do? Well, if God knows all things perfectly, then philosophically one could say God actually doesn't think. He knows all things completely, all at once. He has no need to process information or to connect the dots, so to speak. But because we don't even know what that would be like, like even in saying that, I don't even know what that would be like, in a sense, then, God is presented to us in Scripture as a God who engages us in relationships in a linear way. So we pray, he answers. We pray, he responds. That's kind of a back and forth, a sequential process. But at the same time, that's probably just language to accommodate our ignorance because we don't really know what it is even like to know all things perfectly all at once. So we're always down here trying to come up with, we're, we're talking about how to process information, how to reason, how to articulate, because we're dealing with people like us in apologetics. But God is different than us. 
you think about it long enough, it sort of boggles the mind. So is Christianity rational? Um, if, if you want to, uh, I'm going to make some recommendations throughout the course as to things you m- might want to read. There's a little book written many years ago, it might even have been back in the 60s, by Paul Little. It, I think it was originally an InterVarsity publication, or at least it was used by his ministry with InterVarsity, simply called Know Why You Believe. How many of you have heard of that book, by the way? Know why it, Don, John? I came across it years ago when I was a youth pastor, and I found it very helpful when I was teaching. Like, I used to teach every week in public schools during their inter-school Christian fellowship clubs at lunch hour. And I, I used a lot of the material in there. And it's just good sort of practical stuff for apologetics. Some of it's a little bit dated, but the basic substance of it is, is good. So that's a good source to look at even with the question, is Christianity rational? So here's, a, here's an interesting statement. One time a little boy was asked, maybe by a Sunday school teacher, what is faith? And he said, well, that's believing something you know isn't true. <laughs> now, just think about that for a minute. A lot of people think that's what faith is. It's like you go to school, or when you step outside the church, that's when you encounter truth. But faith is kind of some sentimental, airy-fairy kind of thing that really has nothing to do with the mind or evidence or, or, or rational dialogue. So unfortunately, many believers kind of buy into this idea and they possess a faith that is shallow. So we have some that say, okay, if you just believe something to be true, it'll be true. Well, that's, that's not a biblical definition of faith. To be a Christian then, do you have to kiss your brains goodbye? Like, do you have to buy into that kind of faith? Oh, here's the importance of rational faith to you. We, we face great challenges in a post-Christian age. In case you didn't know it, we live in a post-Christian age. Not a lot of biblical Christians around. And therefore, we probably would do well to know why we believe and what we believe. So what we want to do then is we want to just make sure we understand the difference between the act of faith and the object of faith. The act of faith, that's us believing, embracing certain things. In the act of faith, there is room for ignorance, for error, and for flaws. You understand that, right? So if you say, well, I have faith that this is going to happen, that doesn't mean it's true. Because the act of faith can be flawed. I mean, I can, I can believe something to be true, but it's cause I, maybe it's because I was taught something about God poorly, or I don't understand something about myself, or I'm spiritually immature, or I'm ignorant, or... You know, I had bad pizza the night before. And so I really have faith that something is going to happen, but it doesn't happen because the act of faith can be flawed. But then there's the object of faith. So the object of faith is God, uh, the word of God spoken, Christ, God's revelation of himself. And of course, theoretically, that is not flawed. So the difference between the act of faith and the object of faith is if I take my finger and point at the moon, this is actually an illustration given by a Zen Buddhist, believe it or not, but he was right. When you, if I take my finger and point at the moon, the finger is the act of faith, the moon is the object of faith. If the finger points the wrong direction, the object of faith is still there and is still true, but the act of faith is flawed. So it is possible for a Christian to put their faith in something that is in fact flawed or to misdirect their faith, to believe that God is going to give them a million bucks. Because what they're doing is they're not 
differentiating between the object of faith and the act of faith. So I, I say this because we need to be really careful when we say to people, you need to have faith. What we don't mean is emulate my faith because my faith may or may not be flawed. When we say, I'm calling you to faith, I'd like to introduce you to my faith, what we're actually saying is we want to introduce you to the object of our faith. So we need to make sure that's clear in our minds. Why do people demand rational faith uh, to understand the sort of the object of our faith? Because a, a, a clear reason presentation of the gospel, while it is not a substitute for true faith or a replacement of the work that only the Spirit of God to, it, it can do. It is the basis for faith. In other words, when we say we're rationally presenting our faith, we're presenting the object of our faith. We want them to know about God, the Bible, Christ, Christianity. To most people, an elusive, intangible, and invisible God is parallel to a non-existent God, right? So if you can't smell it, touch it, taste it, see it, it doesn't exist. Now, you may not be smart enough to know that if that's your worldview, it's because you're a naturalist, even if you don't know it. And that's an inadequate worldview, and we're going to talk about why it's an inadequate worldview. But a person may not know that they're a naturalist, but that's how they process life. And so when you come to them saying, well, let me introduce you to God. Oh, where is he? Oh, uh, he's invisible. He's invisible? Well, how do you know about him? Like, can, I, can I hear him speak? Well, no, he doesn't do that. Uh, okay, well... Could he at least touch me? He doesn't really do that. Well, then he doesn't exist. And it's because their worldview is that you can only experience things through, experience life through the senses. And then, of course, uh, people can at times demand uh, a, a rational faith because of pride or moral problems, right? And you've got to be careful about this. There are some people that really their issue is not that they don't believe the evidences, but they have a huge ego. And they're far too reliant upon their own abilities to sort out life than they are interested in turning their life toward God. At the same time, in the Bible, the Bible does present us with rational evidences. The history of Christianity is, in large part, about evidences. We have like, tangible aspects to our faith. We have an incarnation. Now, a person may not believe in the incarnation, so we need to maybe point them to some of the historical considerations that indicate the, the incarnation is true. But let's just, for the sake of our conversation, say this. The Bible does present us with an incarnation. The Bible also presents us with a resurrection. It presents us with historical events, with miracles, with facts, with, one could say, evidences. The incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, in, in and of itself, is an evidence for what? Among other things, the deity of Christ. That's why that happens to be included in the Bible, out of all the stuff God could have included. The resurrection is uh, a proof that Jesus actually conquers death, conquers fear. Again, you may not believe it. That's another discussion. The point is, within the Bible, within the context of the Bible, the resurrection is presented as a truth to back something else up. So, within the Bible itself... Uh, there, is, uh, there are truth claims. And uh, let me just uh, make three more brief points and then uh, we have run out of time, so I'll let you go. The Bible teaches that very obviously the Spirit of God is the one who convicts. So I want to stress that, that 
conviction, regeneration, that spiritual rebirth is a work of God. It's not our job. But we are commanded to give a reasonable answer. There's a couple of passages. And believing because he lives within my heart doesn't always work real well when you don't feel very good. So I've said this to some of you before. Because I have had a personal encounter with God, I know that God exists. But you don't know what my personal experience is like, so that may not be particularly convincing for you. At the same time, I have to be a little bit careful about interpreting my spiritual experience because sometimes, I'll just, I'll just say straight up, sometimes I don't feel that God exists. So there are times when I'm living my life, and now there's times when I, I'm feeling he exists, so I'm not even really concerned about rational evidences. There's other times where I don't feel very good right now about my faith or God, so I'm relying upon rational evidences. So it kind of goes back and forth. So we, we can't sort of put all of our eggs in one basket. Truth is truth apart from feeling. Do we experience God? Yes. But God is also not dependent upon my ability to feel or engage him. It's possible that God could exist and I not feel him. It's possible. It just happens to be that I do feel him and I also believe that he exists. So uh, tonight what we've done is we have um, sort of uh, introduced you to some definitions uh, relevant to uh, apologetics, talked a little bit about some pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff, some rash definitions for what it means to reason and be rational. We'll do a little bit more of that uh, at the beginning of next class. But then what I re really want to do is get rid right into uh, worldviews and talk about, try to help you to understand how people view life, how they view the world, and what some of their basic presuppositions are as to how they approach life. And if you understand that, then you can uh, engage them a little bit better and uh, by sort of understanding what their world is like. And uh, obviously in order to do that, you sort of need to be able to pick apart their worldview, pick, pull out the pluses and sort of pick away at some of the, uh, the negatives as well. Okay? Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, coming and we we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Stay warm. <laughs>